welcome. You're listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Gleaser. We're coming to you from our brand new studio. Okay, it's actually an empty office storage room next to mine, but still, it's an exciting development for our podcast. We're grateful for your support, which helped make it happen. Thank you, listeners. We're also grateful to our operations manager, Chris Niebling, who on top of everything else he does for us, worked hard to set up this space. Shout out to Chris and our thanks for all his help. We're also grateful to today's amazing guest, Julie Orr from Davis Wright Tremaine for making the time to be with us. Julie spoke to us from Seattle, Washington, where she is based. We discussed her role at the firm, its pro bono program, their creative pro bono acknowledgements, pro bono high fives, pro bono valentines, and the Heart of Justice Award, medical legal partnerships, and more. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Julie. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Rena. Let's jump right in. To get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Oh, sure. I actually have, uh, my legal background is as a um, litigation paralegal, which is the position I had just before becoming the firm's pro bono coordinator. I had worked for the firm as a litigation paralegal for probably 12 years or so when they tapped me for the pro bono job, which was something they had kind of parceled out to various attorneys and staff to handle various aspects of it. And they, there were some forward-thinking people um, who realized that this just wasn't sustainable. So lucky me, they asked me if I would be willing to sort of pull it all together in one place. And that was probably in about 1999. And I started out doing the job half-time and didn't take me long to realize that it really wasn't something you could do well as a halftime endeavor because billable work always wins out in the battle. And so in 2000, I was able to convince them that it needed to be a, a dedicated job. And, uh, and so I've been doing it since then. So even before you became the pro bono manager, how'd you get to the firm in the first place? I had worked at a couple of different firms um, always as a paralegal. I'd gone to paralegal school and was interested in litigation. So I worked at a small firm in Tacoma. I was commuting at that time a very long way. And I knew I always wanted to end up back in Seattle. It's just um, the urban, urban work world is sort of where I wanted to be. And Davis Wright Tremaine uh, was just really high on my list as one of the firms that I wanted to work for. And it worked out. It was just one of those lucky things. Before that, I had been, I had, and my college degree is actually in graphic arts. And I had worked for a couple of graphics companies before um, going back to get my paralegal certificate because that just wasn't a good fit for me. So working in the law world was much more. Um, interesting to me. And in around 1999, when you transitioned to become the pro bono manager, what's your reaction to this change of role? Are you excited, nervous, a mix? How'd that come about? Uh, Well, it was interesting. I actually um, have to admit that I didn't even know what pro bono was. 
Um, as a litigation paralegal, I was so busy, I never had time to even look around. So when they approached me, I had to ask them what the job was. And um, a very wonderful associate sort of took me under her wing and introduced me to the important players in the legal community in Seattle, took me to meetings, and she really mentored me. And the more she mentored me, the more excited I got, and I was um, really, really excited. And I remember my very first Pro Bono Institute conference that really just kind of pulled everything together for me, um, at least as a beginning, as a foundational piece, and, and it was very, very exciting. I really couldn't have been more happy. That's amazing. So what do you think it is about pro bono that got you excited and that sparked a passion that's been um, glowing (laughs) all these years, uh, all these years since? Yeah, I think there was just something so amazing for me about having a job where I felt that what I did really mattered, um, being able to match lawyers and the wonderful skills they have with people who really needed help. And it even spurred me to be an advocate on my own for doing, you know, the things that I could as a non-lawyer. And it just felt like I was getting paid to do good works. And that was really exciting. I, I love that. I think all of us look for meaning in our work. And that is a big value add of pro bono, whether we're doing it full time part-time, however it fits. I think people want meaning, and it's a a tremendous way to find it. Um, Before we dig into your role and how you spend your time, for people who aren't familiar with the firm, could you just give us a really general brief overview of Davis Wright Tremaine? Davis Wright Tremaine is uh, headquartered in Seattle. We're what we call a bi-coastal firm. We have Offices uh, running down the Pacific Coast from Anchorage, Seattle, Bellevue, which is our used to be our Seattle's bedroom community, Portland, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. When then we have uh, the other coast, so to speak, we have Washington D.C. and New York, and then we have an office in Shanghai. And the firm is really uh, known for a number of things. One of the major things that we do is our media work. We're a big First Amendment firm, um, do an awful lot of commercial law as well, um, have an environmental practice, employment practice, boy, a new burgeoning uh, restaurant practice group. Hmm. But it's a firm that sort of stayed about the same size. It's always been about 500 attorneys. I think it's growing a little bit beyond that now. But it has a really nice uh, culture and a really, uh, it has that sort of Northwest culture where we hopefully don't work our attorneys until they, you know, die of exhaustion that there's, um, and, and plus it's in a wonderful place. Yeah. Yeah. That's the reputation. And so let's hope it's true. Thank you for that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so let's, let's talk more about you. How do you spend your time? Well, that's a good question. Um, I spend my time doing all kinds of things. It's Sometimes it's the kind of thing where I look back on the day and go, my gosh, I was busy, but what was I doing? Um, 
all kinds of things. Right now, I am beginning work on our annual report, beginning to look back at what kinds of things we've been involved in and figuring out what are those stories that we're going to want to cover for our annual report. Um, I always, as part of my job, is trying to place matters with the lawyers and convince them that they really need to do this and that they really can do it. And um, I'm working on a couple of new projects for us. One is we've never done adoption cases, and I always thought those sounded really interesting and that they might be really appealing to the lawyers. And um, I've identified somebody in the community who does these um, for kids who have been in foster care or are in foster care and who usually a family member wants to adopt. And he's training our lawyers currently on how to do these matters, how to finalize the adoptions. And we've got a similar project going on in Los Angeles. And so I work on developing projects, trying to find some sweet spots that the lawyers might be interested in. Sometimes lawyers maybe who haven't done pro bono before, if I can find just the right thing, maybe it will engage them. Um, working on a driver's license reinstatement clinic um, as a substitute for our homeless clinic, which um, we used to do, we did for many years, but which wound down for a number of reasons. So I, I work on um, project development. Um, recruiting attorneys, rewarding attorneys, trying to find ways that are meaningful to them, reporting on their work with our annual report and with um, what we call the Pro Bono High Five, which is something that I send out on the portal that just um, celebrates successes that we have so that everybody can celebrate them. And I have uh, just recently gotten an assistant, so I'm in the process of sort of transferring some of my more administrative work to her so that I'm able to spend more time doing the kinds of things I was just listing off. Oh, that's a good segue because we always have so much on our plate, right? There's always things on your to-do list or your wish list that you just never have time to do because you're so busy doing other things. And now maybe you will have some extra bandwidth. So what do you think um, you either will be doing or you wish you could be doing uh, if, when you have more time? I think the most important thing I will be doing and have more time to do is to be uh, checking in with the attorneys on more regular bases to find out what's going on in their matters and have more of those conversations with them about where what they're interested in. I do that, you know, sporadically, but I think I would like to be able to be more systematic about it. And also to have time to get more integrated into our practice groups and be able to get on their agendas for their meetings again, on a more regular basis than just sort of the, the one-off, which is how we've been doing it up to this point. So I think it's, it's really about what I, what I want to spend the time primarily on is building relationships with the lawyers, getting to know them better, because that's really the key to figuring out, you know, what kind of pro bono projects might appeal to them. So critical and so time-consuming. So, yeah. Right. Be... right. <laughs> what, are the, what are your favorite parts of your job? What do you like the most? I absolutely love, of course, hearing um, about the victories that our lawyers get. And I get my own personal thrill when I'm able to match an, an attorney with a case that I feel is especially poignant. 
you know, there are times I, I see lots of referral requests come across through my email and through chatter. And um, some of them just really uh, are very touching and and desperate. And if I can get our, one of our lawyers to take a case like that, I feel really good about doing that. Um, that's just one of the biggest benefits, I think, of my job is being able to get help for somebody who needs it. Yeah, being a meaningful matchmaker. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah, so that's you, right. you mentioned your annual report, which is amazing. I will be a validator. <laughs> the, you, oh, thanks. You all do such a great job of that. And you mentioned pro bono high fives, which I love. Um, I wanted to talk about two other notable ways that the firm acknowledges and celebrates pro bono achievement, pro bono valentines, and the Heart of Justice Award. So could you tell oh, us a little yeah. bit more about those? I, they're very thematic. If we were talking in February, it would be very timely. Maybe we'll talk again then. But I love the idea right. of the Valentines and then the Heart of Justice Award. So let's start with the Valentines. Tell us about those. Sure, sure. It's a totally stolen idea, as is the pro bono high five. These are things that I probably heard at the pro bono institute conferences and then took home and made my own, but they, they are really been, you know, there's such a brain trust at those conferences that um, I always find that those, the ideas I get are really good ones. So the pro bono Valentine was just a way to um, acknowledge and reward not only the lawyers, but also the staff for achieving, the firm has an aspirational goal of 50 hours per lawyer. So this was a way to sort of acknowledge those who have made that um, achievement. And we just tied it to Valentine's Day because it's sort of at a time in the year when all the awards from the year before are over and there's not that much going on. The pro bono um, celebration isn't until October. So February just turned out to be a perfect time to to insert something that was fun uh, to keep pro bono in the forefront. So every year we have our marketing department um, develop some kind of, you know, interesting and Valentine-ish and pro bono themed graphic. And we've been doing them as a door hanger. So they're easy for us to run around and put on the doors early in the morning on, on February 14th. And, um, the lawyers seem to like it, and we publish the names of everybody who received their door hanger on our portal throughout the firm, and then we send them off to all the offices so they all get to do it. And then when I go visit the offices, I like to look in people's offices and see yep. that they've got their door yep. hanger, you yep. know, either still hanging on their door or tacked into their um, bulletin board somewhere in their office. So I know that people like to get them. That's great, and we hope people will borrow this idea <laughs> and <laughs> right and give out pro bono valentines of their own. That's sure. fantastic, fantastic. And what about the Heart of Justice Award? So the Heart of Justice Award is our award to um, an associate. We've always had awards for partners who provided either pro bono or community service, and this award is for specifically an associate and specifically for pro bono service, for an associate who has kind of gone above and beyond and really, you know, set themselves out as a model for other associates and distinguish themselves by their level of commitment. So we um, nominate people. We have the pro bono committee has a representative, a partner, and an associate from each office. 
So they come up with a list of candidates from their office, winnow it down to one that each office can submit, and then the whole committee votes on who should get the award. And um, we make the presentation for the award at our biannual all-attorney retreat. So at each retreat, we're making two awards, one for the present year and one for the year prior and it's just become kind of a lovely tradition. And we also have a one of those sort of, it's like a plaque. It memorializes every year's winner, what office they were from, gives their name and what office they were from. And that's getting to be quite big. We're going to have to move to a second uh, trophy or whatever in sometime soon. Um, so it's lovely to see because it, it represents the history of pro bono at the firm, which is nice to see. It's nice on a lot of fronts. You know, at, at PBI, we think a lot about what will encourage people to get involved in pro bono, right? What will motivate people? What will, what will keep people engaged? And just by chance, I was reading a book recently by a behavioral economist. His name is Dan Ariely, and his book is called Payoff, The Hidden Logic That Shapes Our Motivations. And I stumbled across this um, section about acknowledgments. It sounded a lot about things like pro bono valentines and ceremonies and uh, recognition events. And I love when there's science behind it, right? It's not just our gut instinct that tells us this is effective, but there's data and evidence. And he has this lovely passage where he writes, acknowledgement is a kind of human magic, a small human connection, a gift from one person to another that translates into a much larger, more meaningful outcome. And then he talks about some of his studies and experiments and says that the results show that we can increase motivation simply by acknowledging the efforts of those working with us. So I feel like the Valentines really have an effect. <laughs> and there's, you know, now yeah. science behind it that you know, people aren't doing pro bono necessarily to be acknowledged and and um, right. rewarded, but it certainly helps. <laughs> it certainly isn't bad. And um, it really, I like the idea of the Valentine and the awards as a uh, human magic. <laughs> it's a, yeah, I think that's really an, a lovely way he had of putting it. And I think it also, additionally, it sort of builds the values of the firm. I mean, it's a demonstrable way of encouraging the kind of behavior you want your lawyers to exhibit at the firm, which is what culture is all about. Yep. And then it becomes part of the fabric of the firm, which is another great segue. Are there, in addition to uh, events and um, the visibility that we were talking about and sort of other um factors. Do you have other suggestions for what you found works best to incentivize and encourage people at the firm to do pro bono work? Wow. That's really one of the hardest aspects of this job, I think, particularly getting people who don't have an, an innate sense of giving back or who are overly concerned about other issues of work life at the law firm so that they don't pay attention to the pro bono responsibility. I think it's really tough. 
you know, that's why I try to work and find projects that I think will appeal to people who may not have done pro bono before, because I think that's really the key to getting people involved is finding that way to touch them, finding that group of people or that person or that issue that they really care about and can't say no to. Agreed. I think that's a good strategy. I mean, people have passions and you want to tap into that and that's where they're likely to go, you know, above and beyond and, and get involved. Um, right. I'm actually curious while we've been talking, I mean, this is raises an interesting question for me. As you've been in your role for, let's just say, some time now, which is amazing. <laughs> what, <laughs> Thank you. What, what changes have you seen either in, you know, pro bono at the firm, the firm, you've mentioned that, you know, the size has been stable. So you're not kind of dealing with, whoa, in my arc, we've gone from 100 lawyers to 1,000 lawyers. That's the biggest change. But I'm curious, you know, we hear a lot about, have you seen a difference with, you know, the attitudes of millennials or your your newer lawyers or just Hmm. the unrelenting pace of the practice of law now, even, you know, the Northwest where it's kindler and gentler. <laughs> what, what, what have you seen kind of over the arc of your time that represents, you know, any change or difference? Have you noticed anything? Well, I've certainly seen the number of people with positions like me grow in this area. When I started out in 1999 or 2000, I was the first and only person in the city of Seattle doing what I do, certainly as a full-time job. And we now have uh, five in the city. And then I think there are other additional people who do it in addition to their full-time, other full-time responsibilities. So that the community of pro bono has certainly grown. The number of projects of nonprofits has probably doubled at least so that there are you know, many more kinds of people, groups of people, needs of people being identified and lawyers attempting to find ways to address those needs. And even within the firm, within my firm, my job has grown. Um, I'm no longer a coordinator. I'm a manager, which is um, nice for me as a title, but also I think just signifies that the firm recognizes the importance of having somebody in this role to manage this, basically what's a practice group and to, you know, that the firm can capitalize on it as well because so much good news comes out of the pro bono work we do. Yeah. I mean, so it's really gotten to be much more institutionalized within the firm, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Right. Cause arguably you are running the largest practice group at the firm. Yeah. <laughs> if you think yeah. about sort of everyone being involved um, in one way or another. Um, Right. <laughs> if you were talking to the you from 1999, or maybe someone, let's say, in Seattle that's now coming into a pro bono leadership position, what would you tell them? What, what tricks of the trade or tips have you learned that, that you think wow. would be helpful? Well, yeah, I think <laughs> I've learned over the years how important it is to be really well organized. There are so many people. There are so many players. You need to get out. You need to get around. You need to meet people in the community. You need to be able to, so that you can connect the lawyers with the groups that, you know, 
would, are offering the pro bono opportunities. So I would say get organized and become a people person if you're not already a people person. Get to know everybody in your community who might even tangentially have something to do with pro bono because there's so many ideas, so much brain power, and it. I think it just helps. This can be a very tough job. There are times when it just gets you down because there's so much need, and there's no way you're going to be able to get lawyers to do all the things you want them to do. They just they they just have so many demands on their time. So you have to find ways to keep yourself keep your spirits up and stay motivated. And I find that talking with people uh, within the community, but even not perhaps in the pro bono community, um, but who are good organizers, who are leaders, I find that continually reinvigorating. Oh, those are great tips. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Let's talk a little bit about some of... Um, some projects and some activities. And you personally were very active and involved in an effort in King County, Seattle, to expand legal services for survivors of domestic violence. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about this really inspiring and actually award-winning uh, program. Sure, yeah, that's a, an interesting one. That program really came about as a result of the meeting that ABCO members had with then-Vice President Joe Biden, who really encouraged ABCO members to partner with nonprofits and come up with significant projects to really provide service and expand services in their area. And so I got together with a couple of my colleagues in Seattle and really, it was clear that one of the areas that really had a lot of need was the area of domestic violence. And we already had a project that Joanna Boysen at Foster Pepper was handling, which was, I think at the time she was calling it the revision squad. So people who had their protective order or had been denied a protective order um, and needed to get another you know, whack at the apple could um, be screened by this project for to have their... Um, request revised or reconsidered by the court. And we had that beginning, but we identified that we really needed to move further upstream in the process of helping people get their order. So we needed to be able to intervene and help them craft a declaration that was really going to be much more useful because while it's supposed to be a pro se process, it's really difficult for some survivors to represent themselves. And so we started we came up with the idea of helping people um, with drafting their declaration while they were in a shelter. So we know that they're working with a case manager and assumedly they would be ready to go and get their protective order. So that's how it started. We actually work now with two different shelters and we have volunteers who go on a monthly basis, rotating of course, to meet with clients and to help the client craft um, their declaration so that it's something they could actually go into court and read if they are feeling not sure what they're supposed to say or are feeling um, intimidated by the fact that their abuser is in the courtroom and that their abuser has an attorney and they may not. So we've had really good results with being able to help them with this. I think it's so helpful to hear origin stories of new pro bono projects to inspire and show people that just because a certain 
uh, client base or area of need isn't being met in their community doesn't mean it can never be met. You, you can create right. it. You can build it. You can go out and make it happen. And that's a fantastic example of that. And another one that you all have been very involved in was the birth of the Washington Medical Legal Partnership. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about how that came about and um, how that has benefited the community. Sure. That was, that was probably about 10 years ago. Um, One of the, I wasn't even, it was brought, the idea was brought to me by one of our lawyers who had heard about the medical legal projects in Boston which was the origin of those of those projects. And we have Children's Hospital is a client of the firm and the partner reached out to Children's Hospital to see if they were had heard of it and might be interested. And apparently the social workers at Children's Hospital had been desperate for something like this because they've been trying to assist the patients at the hospital the best that they could, but were having difficulty with the legal issues, as you might imagine. And so we began meeting and um, exchanging ideas and information with the social workers and the lawyers, and then the, the group got huge. And then we got some financing and, or, you know, a grant, and we got a dedicated lawyer to kind of help give the thing structure. And, you know, over time, the project was born where there was a hospital side coordinator, and we brought in Northwest Justice Project, which is the statewide legal services provider in Washington, um, came into the project as sort of the legal side and then the law firms were the pro bono side. And um, to my knowledge, it's worked really well. The project is still going. They had a big fundraiser last week that I went to, and it was really wonderful. Great stories. And um, what our lawyers at Davis Wright Tremaine have been able to assist with, since we do immigration work for companies looking to bring people in to do, to do work, is that we're able to help with some of the immigration needs that, for instance, kids who are in children's hospital and who've got serious medical conditions and, of course, need their parents with them, and we're able to get lawyers who can assist them with the visas that they need to be able to stay and support their kid while they're, while they're in treatment. We also do, uh, I'm not sure that our firm does it, but some other firms have developed uh, guardianship expertise so they can provide that service. And the project is now, not because of anything I'm doing, but is expanding um, Eastside Legal Assistance Project, which is based in Bellevue, is expanding to work with a hospital on the east side and build out a project there. Thank you. That's, it's great news. It's a great project. And talk about community-wide. You know, it's, it's very collaborative. And the value add to the patients, the families, uh, it's really the medical legal partnerships are amazing. So it's thank you. Yeah, for they sharing. really are. And they were yeah. a brilliant idea um, as a way to sort of tie together the, you know, the multiplicity of needs and the interrelatedness of people's human needs um, in the medical sent- setting where, you know, they kind of they can collide. They overlap and people are really vulnerable at that time. I think that's another area where 
um, I think the pro bono community has matured and gotten sophisticated in this whole idea of holistic representation, right? <laughs> that, that, that we're people and we have legal needs and we have employment needs and we have sort of social work needs and housing, you know, and it's, we're, it's mm-hmm. all very intertwined. And I think the medical legal yeah. partnerships really embody that, 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 you know, let's full court press. And really that's how we solve problems. And create change. Um, Earlier, you talked about being uh, a matchmaker and that it makes you extremely happy and gratified (laughs) when there is a matter that you see on a listserv or a chatter in your inbox and, and it sings to you for whatever reason and you are able to place it. So I was hoping you could share some stories for whatever reason of, of matters that were particularly meaningful to you, that that song. And it's not to say others aren't valuable and important. It's always hard to pick. Um, but clearly, you know, some resonate with you uh, for whatever reason. I was hoping you could share some examples. Right. Um, usually, for me anyway, it's usually the small cases. Of course, <clears throat> all of the activity that's been going on post-election and having our attorneys turn their talents towards dealing with the fallout from some of those uh, those issues that have been raised has been very gratifying to see our firm really really take hold. You know, we've been involved in in travel ban stuff, and we've been working at the airports, and we're involved in issues around sanctuary cities, and uh, I can't even think of all of the various issues, and that's very gratifying. But personally, for me, it's the sort of one-on-one. It's the one individual who's got a bad situation, who's been taken advantage of, or who is um, vulnerable for some reason. Um, There are a couple of stories that I can tell. There was a, um, and I don't remember how I received notice about this, but a man from another country, I think it might have been a Middle Eastern country, very nice man. He'd been riding the city bus. He had, he was blind. And he had a cane and he had sunglasses on. So he was quite obviously, um, you know, vision impaired, riding the city bus. And when he got on the bus, he had asked the bus driver to let him know when his stop was coming up so that he could get off. And this was before drivers were, were required to give that kind of notice. And the driver neglected to do it. And then um, realized, I guess, that he he didn't do it and pulled up the curb on a busy street in Seattle that's called Aurora Avenue. It's like it's our Highway 99 and it's 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 a crazy road. Pulled up and told the man that, you know, he this wasn't a stop that he needed to get off. He was he had gone past it. So, this man got off the bus and he was disoriented. He didn't know where he was, of course, and he stepped off the curb and um was almost hit by a car. He went down his glasses flew off his face and were broken, and somebody called the police, and the police cited him for some reason. And I just found that to be just highly offensive. And um, I worked with, I just decided I was going to invest in this one. And so I worked with him and some of his neighbors who had come to his side to aid him. And we just went to the hearing at the municipal courthouse to fight his ticket, which fortunately the police officer never showed up. So the whole thing disappeared, but it's that kind of little thing that really gets to me. Um, that's just one story, but there are so many stories of like right now we have 
um, a lawyer who is representing two sisters, minors, who are um, referred to the firm by kind, and uh, trying to get asylum for them and, um, you know, the things that these girls went through to get to this country were extremely difficult, things that no child, let alone any person, should have to go through. So that's that's the kind of thing that really makes me very happy that I have this job. Thank you. Very inspiring. If you had a magic wand, what would you change about pro bono or access to justice? You mean just like in the world or in my world? Either way. If I could change something in my world, it would be that there would be some way to incentivize more partners to participate because I think they are such an important group and I understand that they're all very, very busy and they do a lot of giving back to the community in a lot of different ways. Um, But I would like to have pro bono champions among our senior partners to inspire and lead the younger attorneys and really, I think that would really be an amazing change. And I, and I think incentivizing them in some way, which as far as I can tell, every pro bono manager or counsel wishes to be able to find, but it's been elusive. That's why it's a good wish for your magic wand. I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it will take a magic wand. <laughs> so, Julie, let's uh, wind down with this. Who's your pro bono role model and why? Well, I actually have a couple. Great. Um, one of my colleagues at Foster Pepper, Joanna Boysen, is amazing to me, and I admire her greatly. She came into that firm as, I think, straight out of law school. And for some reason, Joanna has a ton of confidence, and she proposed her job to them, and they bought it, and I don't think they've ever looked back. She is got, She's just full of energy. She's full of ideas. There's no problem she can't figure out some way of solving. And she is a people aggregator. She's a people bringer together. She's very inspiring. And fortunately, I get to work alongside her on a lot of the projects in this city. So um, she's very, very, very inspiring to me. And another one is a woman who's been in this pro bono community or in the access to justice community, I should say. Her name is Ada Shen Jaffe. And she is a wealth of knowledge about legal services and providing them to disadvantaged people. And she's really been instrumental in this city in moving the needle on um, access to justice issues. She's got a wonderful manner about her. She's very calm. She's very comforting. She's very easy to talk to. She's extremely knowledgeable. And I want to be like her when I grow up. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for telling us about these amazing women. And thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been a pleasure and amazingly inspiring. Thank you so much to Julie for joining us today. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and suggestions to probono at probonoinst.org. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on iTunes and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. And if you're listening on iTunes, 
please take a moment to leave a review. It's quick and easy to do. We'd appreciate the feedback and it would help make it easier for other listeners to find the show and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. To learn more about us, you can find us on the web at probonoinst.org. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.